Now we're going to start our sermon. So if you would turn to Mark chapter 11 in your scriptures or on your device, and um, we're going to read that in just a minute. Uh, but uh, by way of recap, we're in the season of Lent. Uh, Lent is about seven weeks long. Uh, you count all the days during the week except for Sundays, so it's usually about 40 days or so long, um, uh, mirroring the 40 days that Jesus was in the desert uh, fasting and praying before he started his ministry. And um, if you count up those days, if you're doing the math for seven weeks, there's more than 40 days. And why that is is because you don't typically, the tradition is that you don't typically count the Sundays during Lent. So many of you are familiar that most people uh, give something up for Lent or they bring some practice into their life for Lent that forms them spiritually, uh, where they are denying themselves something that they know is not good for them and they're trying to start a new spiritual habit so that they can be more Christ-like. Um, but, so like for instance, if you're giving up, um, if you're giving up, uh, I don't know, meat or something like that for, for Lent, on Sundays, Sundays are typically um, not counted in those days, and they're counted as a feast day. And so you get to then uh, on Sunday have some meat if you would if you would like, and um, then you dive back into the rest of the week abstaining from whatever it is. So um, one of the key phrases for Lent is is this: it is from dust that you have come, and it is from to dust that you will return. Um, and so uh, that is what we're keeping at the foreground of, of these practices, that um, this, this life is temporary, a temporary one, and we are being prepared for an age to come. Um, there are things that when we, when we prepare now that make us better prepared for that next life that we're going to have um, with Jesus. And so I'm asking that you trust God and to trust in the work of Lent because it gets us to resurrection. And Lent is these seven weeks together where we're asking this question, what is it in us that needs to die? Something in all of us that needs to die, probably a lot of some things, but what is it in us that needs to die in us so that somehow something new can be resurrected and be brought to life? That's what resurrection means, to be brought back to life. And so the deal with that is that you can't have resurrection, you can't have it without death. You just can't have it. Something has to die uh, for resurrection to happen. That's like a whole season of confession, if you will. So you're figuring out what are those things that you need to confess, the things that you need to die to, um, the, the daily deaths that Paul calls us to in his gospel, in, in, in his uh, letters. And so um, if it's done right, it's a season of confession and introspection, and, and it's very reflective. Now, Recap from a recap from last week. We we were talking about the Sadducees and and the leaders, the spiritual leaders in Jerusalem, and what they would do as people made their pilgrimage um, for one of the high holy uh, ceremonies that would happen for the nation of Israel. Uh, we talked about Pentecost and we and and Passover as an example. And Jesus has come into um, Jerusalem in the passage we talked about last week on riding on the back of a donkey on this road. And we talked about all that history. And we talked about how those spiritual leaders, they thought they were doing the right thing. And in a lot of cases, they thought that they were um, obeying the law and being righteous, but really they were just adding to it. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, today. They were adding to it and they were making it harder for the common person out there who's trying to show their love and devotion to God for them to actually do that. And they ended up taking advantage of them on the way. So we talked about how 
they would charge them all this money along the way to be do all the pure uh, the um, purification washings and things like that um, we where we landed on that was they wanted to do the right thing but they ended up doing it the wrong way and the lesson from that is that when you do the when you do the the right thing the wrong way you ultimately end up doing the wrong thing and so Jesus is get, kind of giving a diatribe against that um, this week, we're going to look at it from a different angle, and some of the things that we're going to learn here are probably going to be new to some of you, um, but I hope it'll be illuminating for you as well. So um, this week, we're going to talk about how there's just one source uh, for true wisdom, and that, that person is God, that person is Jesus, and um, we're going to see how the Jewish leaders um, uh, interact with Jesus and how Jesus calls out, Jesus calls out um that they think they are um, wise, but they are really um, not choosing God's wisdom. And he, he does this in a very, very unique way, very unique way. So, all right, I'm going to read the text and then we're going to jump in. And it comes, we're going to start in verse 12 of Mark chapter 11, which says this. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And you just love, I just love verses like that, you know, because I'm hungry or I'm tired, or I'm thirsty, or I'm grumpy, that kind of thing. I just love how there's just texts like this that show the humanity of Jesus. He says, it says, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Okay, so this is... Uh, you read this text, and, and if you do, maybe you have a study Bible, you read it and you go, okay, to understand what time of year it is, the tree that he goes up to should not be bearing fruit at this time. And so then you go, well, what is, is Jesus really not knowledgeable about this? Or is he an idiot? Or is he hangry? What is going on here? Is he just grumpy? Uh, the, really, though, the disciples who are have grown up in this Jewish culture, who are good Jewish boys, they understand, because Jesus is their rabbi, they understand that they are seeing a rabbinical lesson taking place. It's taking shape here. Um, I want to show you a picture of a fig tree. This is what a fig tree looks like. Um, and then I'm going to show you another picture in a minute. This is, where, this is what a fig tree looks like in season. And you can pause that on the screen and check it out if you want. Uh, I just wanted you to see that for reference. Um, but again, it's not the right time of year for the fig tree to be producing fruit. So what is going on here with with Jesus and this fig tree. In, what I want to want you to know is that in first century Judaism, the fig tree is symbolic of rabbinic spiritual leadership. Okay, um, if you read some commentaries, if you have a commentary on this verse and it says that it's that the fig tree is uh, symbolic of the whole people of Israel, I, that's wrong. I don't think that's right. Um, the olive tree is what is normally um, symbolic of the entire nation of Israel. So if you have a commentary that says that the fig tree is, uh, get a new commentary. <laughs> but this one, the, the, the fig tree is really symbolic of rabbinical um, spiritual leadership. Okay, um, And why is that? Well, the answer is always in the text uh, for the Jews. And what I mean by that is... Um, the text that Jesus and his disciples had was the Old Testament. And so when we look at what Jesus is doing, there's always usually some reference that he's already at work. He's, he's, do, he's working off of something that's come before in the, in the Old Testament scriptures. In this case, I want you to 
keep your place in, in Mark, but then turn, turn to um, Proverbs 27, if you will. We'll put it up on the screen for you too. Proverbs 27, just one verse, verse 18, it says this. Um, and I want you to say these words after me. The one who guards a fig tree, the one who guards a fig tree, will eat its fruit. Okay? And whoever protects their master will be honored. The one who guards a fig tree will eat its fruit, and whoever protects a ma their master will be honored. Well, let's do a little background here. Fig trees. If you had a fig tree, if you had a fig tree in your yard uh, at the time uh, when Jesus was alive, you were blessed beyond blessed because this fig tree is a source, number one, of perpetual food. If you take care of the tree, it's always going to produce uh, a source of food for you year in and year out. Number two, fig trees are basically, there are very few sources of, of sweet things uh, back then. Fig trees are one of the most sugary uh, foods that you could find, right? So basically, if you have a fig tree on your property and you own that fig tree and you take care of it, you are not going to let anything happen to that fig tree because that fig tree is like a candy store on your land. It's a, it's a candy store. And... Um, it's gonna it's gonna feed you. Um, you can sell the figs. What it's a source of income, all that kind of good stuff. So, if you dig a little bit deeper, though, the root word for the word master in Hebrew. Remember, the proverb said, uh, "Whoever protects their master will be honored." The word for master in Hebrew, the root word is rav. Okay, rav is the root word for rabbi. Later on, so. The word, the other word that's in that in that section of scripture, um, the word for protect, okay, in Hebrew is the same word as serve in other places, in many places. So sometimes colloquially, in um, uh, at that time, they would say the word uh, smush <laughs> means to serve. I want to smush. I want to smush. Uh, say that word with me. Smush to smush your rabbi, not to smush them, but to smush your rabbi means that you want to serve them in a way that says thank you. You want to serve them in a way that says thank you. And so um, the, the fig tree, based on this verse in Proverbs, became symbolic of rabbinic leader, leadership. Um, and so that's the background here. Um, you want to smoosh your rabbi. You want to protect and serve them in a way that says thank you. So then why does Jesus curse this fig tree? Why does he curse it? The disciples would have picked up um, on this immediately. Jesus is obviously condemning re rabbinic leadership of the Jewish people of their time. One of the biggest things Jesus critiques about the Pharisees is that they keep adding to the heart of God's law. So there are the Ten Commandments, but then God gave the Hebrew people uh, a total of 613. How many? Say that with me. 613 commandments in the Torah, okay? So you have the Ten Commandments, but you have 613 laws in the Torah. Um, but in Jesus's day, the spiritual leaders came along, and by the time Jesus comes around, they had added, on top of the 613, they had added 3,000 uh, laws to that. And then uh, about a century after Jesus, they had added 3,000 more. So a century after Jesus, essentially, if you were a Jew, you had 10 times the number of laws uh, in the Talmud at that time, a century after Jesus, than God gave you originally in the Torah. So 
Jesus's critique is that he wants them to be devoted to the right things. And I think they want that, but they've lost sight of that. You can't, it's kind of like they can't see the forest for the trees anymore. Jesus comes along and he says, the heart of the law is what? It's two commandments. It's to love God and love other people. The whole law hinges on God's love. It's about God's heart. So for us, we want to become better and better at creating the kind of spaces that allow us to lean lean up against, it's kind of like a kid, you know, like my daughter and my son when they were little, and even sometimes now, they'll give me a hug and they'll lean up against my chest. And um, I, I think my daughter said this not too long ago, she could hear my heartbeat, right? She could hear my heartbeat. So we want to create, Jesus is saying, remember that it's about loving God and loving other people. We want to become better and better attuned to creating the kind of spaces that allow us to lean up against the chest of God, and feel his heartbeat. What is he all about? And Jesus comes along and says, the heartbeat of the Torah is that we would love other people. And when we love other people, or when we create space for the outsider, people who lack belonging, God's heartbeat, when we do that for other people, God's heartbeat picks up its pace, it skips a beat. He's like, yeah, yeah, you're doing, you're doing what I made you for. So because Jesus says to them, you're adding all these rules, you're losing the heartbeat of the Torah, this is the condemnation that he's giving when he talks about this, when he tells this fig tree to dry up. And you're going to see that even, uh, even more clearly in just a minute. So here we go. Back into the text, starting in uh, about verse 15. It says this, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. All right, so... He, one of the things that they added on, uh, the spiritual leaders added on, was at the temple. We talked about temple currency last week. They wouldn't allow, you came, to, you came to Passover, to celebrate Passover, and you had your Roman money. Maybe you came from a thousand miles away. You had your Roman money, but it had a picture of Caesar on it. And they said there would be no graven images or idols that would be allowed into the temple. And so you take your money, you take your money to the religious leaders and they say, hey, well, we have our exchange rate right here. And it's always in their favor, of course. And they say, you have to buy temple money. We'll exchange it for temple money. And then you can come in and offer, give your offerings and your tithes and your, and your sacrifices. So you can buy your sacrifices with that money. All that kind of thing, okay? Um, but the law, that kind of thing, Jesus, that kind of thing was not commanded in the Torah. It's not like God won't accept other money. It wasn't ex explicitly said in the Old Testament, you, you can't use uh, this type of money or that type of money or anything like that. Again, their desire, the religious leaders, their desire is not to commit idolatry, okay? Um, but when they, even though that's their desire, they end up adding all these extra rules. But the real problem here is that in all of this that they're doing, uh, where they actually did all this exchanging, where Jesus walks into the temple and overturns the tables, the temple mount is the space where this happens. And the space that, that specifically that it's happening, where Jesus is doing this, is especially reserved for aliens, foreigners, um, people uh, like a eunuchs, that kind of thing, who are not allowed into the next part of the temple, but they are given a place where they can um, worship God. Anybody who is an outsider was supposed to have a sacred place set apart in these temple courts so they could still worship God. But the religious leaders have set up shop 
in that space that's set aside for them. And Jesus is livid. He is absolutely livid. Let's, let's read that again in verse 15. So halfway through, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it, you have made it a den of robbers. Okay, that is very significant. Jesus does something here that is actually just amazingly brilliant. Um, in the rabbinical world, he does he does what's called Gezer uh, Shavah, Gezerah Shavah. Okay, and this is where you take two different scriptures that seemingly have nothing to do with each other, not connected at all, um, but they they share a common phrase. And so, because they share that common phrase, a rabbi or a teacher would put them together, and he would do Gezerah Shavah. Okay, and when you do that, all the trained Jewish listeners who know their scriptures and who have been sitting at the feet of rabbis or, or religious leaders, they're going, oh my gosh, he did not. Jesus just mic drop, boom. He's like, what did he just do? Uh, and really, it's amazing. In this case, he brilliantly ties together Isaiah chapter 56, which we'll go to in a minute, and um, Jeremiah chapter 7, because both of these uh, sections of scripture have the phrase in them, my house called my house called and so this one phrase two scriptures from two different pro, uh, prophetic books that are seemingly not connected in, in in any specific way and jesus connects them to to just drop the hammer on these religious leaders and everybody's going oh my word he did not so let's let's turn to isaiah chapter 56 Okay, so this is what it says in Isaiah 56, verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Uh, blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people and let no unit complain. I'm only a dry tree. This is Isaiah preaching a sermon, and he says, God wants you to maintain justice, and he wants you to do what's right. And Isaiah goes on to say, what's right is making sure that you take care of the people that God cares about. Duh. You take care of the people that God cares about, and he cares about everyone. So that it says, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people, and let no eunuch complain. What does Isaiah say? What does he say? He says, oh, I'm only a dry tree. Jesus' disciples are like, oh my snap, my goodness. He did not just say that. What's, what is sitting just outside the city? What did he just do? He told this fig tree to dry up. And these disciples are going, oh my gosh, that just happened. There's a dry tree right outside of Jerusalem. And then Jesus is dropping this bomb right on these spiritual leaders. And Jesus is like, forget about the tree outside, forget about the tree outside, forget about the eunuch being a dry tree. He is saying to his disciples, these spiritual leaders are a dried up tree. Ooh, ooh. This is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose, if you go back to verse uh, uh, four, this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. 
it's just, okay, it's amazing. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Let's summarize this. If you're a eunuch, you can't go into the temple, according to Deuteronomy. If you're a eunuch and you love God with all your whole, with your whole heart, with your whole soul, with all your soul, with all your might, all your strength, your name, this, this scripture that Jesus is referring to, your name is written in the, within the walls of the temple. It's awesome. Don't you love this? Foreigners and eunuchs can't offer burnt offerings and sacrifices because they can't even get to the altar inside the temple. And Isaiah is preaching this from God, and God is saying, oh yeah, they they have offerings and sacrifices uh, that, that are good and holy, and they will be accepted in my house of prayer. But here's the point. Jesus references this in the courts, in the courts where these very people are supposed to be allowed to worship, but the leaders of Jesus' time are desecrating that space by setting up shop in it and not allowing these very people that he, he, he references in this verse to even meet there. It's just, wow, wow. And then he goes even further in this, in this term, uh, Gezerah Shavah, he, to Jeremiah chapter 7. So if you flip over to the next prophet in your Old Testament, you got Isaiah, Jeremiah, go to Jeremiah chapter 7, starting in verse 1. And let's see what that says. It says this, This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then... I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors, forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Mm. Okay. Um, if you skip down to verse 21, uh, we'll, we'll just take part of that out here. Skip over the next little bit. And it says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead and add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention, and instead they followed, followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. Wow. Wow. So in Isaiah 56... God said that eunuchs and foreigners would offer acceptable sacrifices. And in Jeremiah 7, there's this statement. Your sacrifices, just eat it yourself because it's going nowhere. It's not coming to me. Whoa. Okay. Jeremiah says the law was about a lot more than getting your temple worship correct. 
So what I want you to see here is in this brilliant rabbinical condemnation that Jesus engages in, where he says, this is what God desires, and yet you won't have anything of it because you think you are so wise that you're bent on your own ways and following your own, your own way of thinking. And God wants to accept the sacrifices and the worship of outsiders, but he doesn't want to accept anything of yours because you don't want to do, you don't have anything to do with his wisdom or his, or his methods. So here's the thing. This isn't something Jesus made up out of thin air. It's not like um, they haven't been hearing these words before. These prophets that came before Jesus have been preaching this for a long time, and he's just turning them in. He's trying to turn them on to and tune them into uh, the thing that has always been there from day one. He's like, listen, this is, I could go all the way back to Abraham if I wanted to. You remember what the promise was to Abraham was that I'm going to make you, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. Keyword, all, not just you, everyone. All right. So this has always been God's heart that we could that we could bless all nations. It's not new. Look at Jeremiah six. If you if you turn back one one chapter, to Jeremiah six, there's this really good verse in there that says, "Stand at the crossroads and look. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask for the good way is and, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls." But you said we will not walk in it. Is what it says. And so what we have here is Jesus uh, giving this diatribe against the leaders who think that they are wise, but they're not recognizing that true wisdom comes, true wisdom comes from God alone. Where does this wisdom come from? How am I supposed to live? One of the key scriptures in the Old Testament about wisdom comes um, from Job. Job chapter 28 is a really excellent chapter um, it's the center of the book of Job, right in the middle. And Job is what is called, one. it, it is one gigantic chiastic uh, structure. You can look up the word chiastic structure on Google or chiasm. It's C-H-I-A-S-M. Um, it's a fancy way of saying that I, there is a center to the book, and everything on either side of it has a parallelism to it. It follows the structure of A-B-B-A. And so you... I'm going to put up a graphic for you, and you can you can kind of look at that. But um, um, I'm going to give you the CliffsNote version of this. So Job 28, Job Job says, man has done some. I'm just going to summarize it for you. He says, man has done some incredible things. He talk, starts talking about all of the things that we can mine from the earth, precious uh, gems and stones and gold, metals, all that kind of stuff. And then he says, do you want to know one thing that man has not done? that he has never found, no matter how deep we've dug down. Um, you want to know what that is? He says it's wisdom, because wisdom only comes from God. And that's at the middle of the very uh, center of Job, um, chapter 28. And that's the question Jesus, I think, is driving home here for his disciples who are uh, being confronted with his way of bringing in the kingdom and his way of wisdom versus the leaders who are over uh, all of the Jewish people. Do we believe that wisdom only comes from God? I mean, really, do we believe that? Um, go back and listen to the worship you sang earlier um, with Nate and Rachel. Uh, listen to the words. As you sing them, do you really mean them? Do you, do you, do you really, really mean them when you sing them? Um, because this is Lent. We're supposed to be reflective. Do you believe that God is the real source for wisdom? Or is the source of, or is he the source of wisdom only when it suits you? 
So really what we're talking about here, uh, when, what Jesus is forcing his disciples to recognize is that there is wisdom and then there's something else. And I think that something else is selfish ambition. Uh, the author of James says it this way in James chapter 3, if you'd like to turn there, starting in verse 13. Uh, it says, who, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For when you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and disorder and every evil practice. So this is James's kind of um, Dr. Phil moment. He's like, how's that working out for you? <laughs> when you live according to selfish ambition, um, when you live according to selfish ambition, it doesn't work. Tell me if you were like, seriously, think about this in your own life. Tell me how that works, how selfish ambition works in your family, in your marriage or in your parenting. Tell me how selfish ambition works at your job. Tell me how selfish ambition works when you get on Facebook and you post something on your wall. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It only produces uh, disorder in every evil practice, as James puts it. Let's finish up that verse in, in James chapter 3, verse 17. It says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven, listen to these words, the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, then considerate, then submissive, then full of mercy and good fruit impartial and sincere. Those words are the opposite of selfish ambition. Mercy, consideration, peace, purity, impartial. That is the opposite of selfish ambition. That's what God's wisdom looks like. God's wisdom will always be full of the fruit of the Spirit. Even when it seems counterintuitive, even when God tells you to love your neighbor and love your enemy as yourself, that will always be God's way. All right, so I know we've looked at like a large scope of scriptures today um, in this progression we're taking in the series of each day in Holy Week, and we're progressing towards the cross and Easter and Resurrection Day. We're in the middle of Lent, and I want to leave you with some implications for what it means to not live with selfless ambition. And when we let that overtake our thinking, uh, and we think it's wisdom, um, just like these uh, religious spiritual leaders of Jesus's day. And he's saying, no, get to that place, get to that place where you uh, have put nothing between you and God. And you can, you can lean in on his chest and you can hear his heartbeat. And then you'll be able to do the things that he's called us to do as his people. Uh, so I wanna leave you with some implications. Um, implication number one, these are, I'm gonna give you four. Implication number one, leaning on our own wisdom Leaning on our own wisdom means wisdom driven by selfish ambition, and it's going to produce disorder and evil. I can tell you from my own life that this has not worked out well, that wisdom driven by selfish ambition has produced disorder and evil in my life. During, during the times right now where our kids are at home, for example, uh, uh, and there's no school because of the coronavirus, um, I've noticed how much of this selfish ambition is in my own parenting, to be honest with you. 
And I'll tell you what else, if it wasn't, if it wasn't for my wife being there with me, and uh, I think it would be even worse if I didn't have her to lean back on. Um, uh, I think that selfish ambition is in all of our hearts in one way, shape, or form, or another, and, and it's in my heart. And the work of Lent is to root it out, it's to root it out because it simply doesn't work. Implication number two, God's wisdom produces the fruit of purity, peace, consideration, and mercy. When you lean on God's wisdom, it's going to produce fruit that is other-centered. So you think about uh, the alien and the foreigner and the widow and the orphan and the eunuch, all those people that were other and didn't have a place of belonging. There are equivalents in our day and age, in our everyday life that we run across all the time. People who have no one, who are lonely. And so when we create space, we create space for other people to see God. When we are other-centered, when we're looking to their needs first, when we're, we're, we're looking to, for the fruit of purity and peace and consideration and mercy in our lives. And those are the opposite things of selfish ambition. Um, when you're full of purity and peace and consideration and mercy. God uses, when we act out of those, out of that place with his heart, God uses those moments to restore other people to him. Those are the tool, tools that God will use, other-centered fruit. Implication number three, righteousness is not a matter of keeping religious rules. Righteous, let me say it again. Righteousness is not a matter of keeping religious rules. And I know some of you are going, wait, I thought that's what it was. <laughs> I thought that was the very definition of righteousness. It was all about rules and being good. And the answer is no, it is not. Righteousness is the Hebrew word uh, zedekah. Uh, and if you were to go to a modern day synagogue right now, at the back of the room, they have a box that's called the Zedekah box, the righteousness box, okay? It's the box where you place all of your over and above gifts, meaning you've done your tithes already, and now anything over that is called an offering. So you've done your 10%, and now you're going to give um, your Zedekah offering, your over and above, and put it in the Zedekah box, okay? And that's what they use to help the needy. And, and the least among us, to help the foreigners and the orphans, and the orphans, it's to be generous. So that's what zedekah, that's what righteousness looks like, because zedekah is the heart of God. Righteousness is not a matter of keeping rules. It's a matter of, I want my heart to be right, just like God's is right. That's what it's about. Righteousness is embodying the heart of God. It's rooted in his restorative work, and it's a matter of partnering with him in that restorative work. Final implication, implication number four. We do not inspire people. We do not inspire people to righteousness by our rule following. I can't say that any more clearly. You're not gonna inspire anybody to be a righteous person by the way you follow rules. We don't inspire people to love God by, by being a rule follower. And that's what I find so distasteful about what I find on social media and Facebook. I see a lot of Christians saying, you can't do this and you can't do that and you have to be like this and toe the line and it's black and white and that kind of thing. What an amazing tool social networking is, but uh, how we choose to talk publicly in those spaces, when I see people posting stupid videos, my, may I suggest that we inspire others to righteousness by making peace. 
by making peace. You bring people to God as a Christian. You bring people to God when you look like what God looks like. When you look like what God looks like. And how does God look? He looks loving and generous and forgiving and merciful and compassionate and pure and peace-loving and considerate. When you look like that, when you look like that, you are putting God on display in the best way possible. And that draws people to himself. And it always will. So I don't know about you, but this is what Lent, this is what Lent is like. It's like a seven-week confessional. When I look inside my heart, there's a lot of selfish ambition that I have to root out. And at the very beginning of this message, I said, we have to find those things that need to die so that something in us can resurrect a new life. What is that thing you need to root out? And there's a lot of confessing we need to do in this season. We need to do over and over and again as over and over again as we with some bread and juice in a minute, in fact, um, that we're going to celebrate communion this morning with uh, because I I want something more selfless to be resurrected this season in me. When I re-encounter the empty tomb on Resurrection Sunday, when you re-encounter the empty tomb on Easter, I, I need it to mean something to, for me. And I, need, I hope you need it to mean something for you, that you have taken some things during this time and you've let them die so that new things can come to life. What I want for, for, for all of us is that when we get to Easter, whether we are meeting in person or we're meeting like this, that we've done some good work and there's a better version of us uh, walking forward uh, on that day than there is of us right now. And I hope and pray that is what you want too.